Turn with me to Psalm 100. We'll use Psalm 100 as a springboard for our sermon subject today. We're starting a six-week mini-series on the elements of our corporate worship. That is to say, we're taking six weeks to take the, the various components that we have in our Sunday morning gathering, what we're doing right now, to identify those, those uh, constituent opponents or, or um, elements and to explain um, what the purpose and the nature, what the, the biblical rationale and justification is for the things that we do. And so today we're starting off with the very first thing that we do in our service. We, um, several, I guess, has it been months now? I can't remember. We moved our welcome and announcements to the very first thing that happens in the service so that we could could do that. We could do whatever communicating we needed to do with the family. But then, so that once we had done that, everything that happened from then on would in some way be deliberately, intentionally, part of our worship together as a congregation. So although the first words that you may hear is in the welcome and the announcements, from our vantage point, from our perspective as pastors here at Edgewood, we consider that the worship service actually begins after that in the call to worship. That's the beginning of our time together, worshiping, serving, praising the Lord. And because that is the very first thing that we do, that marks the beginning of our worship together, we want to actually look and see why do we do that, right? There's no place that you can go to in the scripture that says, thou shalt have a call to worship before you begin Sunday morning service. So why do we do it? That's part of the objective or the goal in doing this little series to say there is actually a reason, a good biblical God-honoring reason that we do the things that we do. And we want that not only to be instructive, but we also want it to be encouraging because as you begin to see that the things that we're doing, God has called us to do, then hopefully that motivates and encourages us as a people to continue to do these things together so that we can grow in our faith and love of our Savior and our King. So, Psalm 100. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Bow with me in prayer. Father, would you help us to see perhaps what we have not seen before? And yet, may it be that the only thing that we see is what is actually there revealed to us in your word. We do not want to be inventors of new practices or new forms of worship. We don't want to chase after novelty. 
We want to be your people faithfully serving and worshiping you in the way that you have prescribed and revealed to us for your glory, for our good. We thank you that you are good and gracious to give us your word, to not leave us in the dark groping and grasping for ways to worship you. May our worship be in spirit and in truth because of the work of your Son on our behalf who reconciles us to you. We pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So Psalm 100. Psalm 100, just starting off here, is a good example of a call to worship. Right? If, if you are a note taker and you have the little brief skeletal outline that we provided at the heads of the aisles, you will not find this definition on your notes. If you are a type A personality and that bothers you to no end, that I'm about to give you a definition that you don't have in your notes or that I don't slow down enough so that you can get every word, I have good news for you. Through the gift of modern technology, you can go to our website and find sermon audio and you can listen to the sermon again, or if you don't want to go through that trial and ordeal of listening to the entire sermon again, you can at least listen to this part where we give a definition of a call to worship, and you can pause and rewind and, and so on until you get it down, okay? So, type A personalities out there, just relax. It'll be okay, all right? What do we mean when we talk about a call to worship? This is not necessarily an inspired definition or even a perfect textbook definition, but for our purposes today, just to get an idea of what we're talking about, we could say something like this, that a call to worship is some statement, command, or exhortation that turns our minds and hearts to God so that we can joyfully acknowledge who He is and respond to what he's done. A call to worship is some sort of statement, command, or exhortation. And by the way, just so that we don't assume too much, the assumption there is, is that this is a scriptural, scriptural statement, command, or exhortation that turns our minds and hearts to God so that we can joyfully acknowledge who he is and respond to what he's done. Just for example, Psalm 100 is almost all call to worship. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Do you hear that? That call to sing, to worship, to serve. Part of what goes on in that call is not just the call, but also the basis or the justification for why we ought to come and worship and serve. Because we're to know, verse 3, that the Lord himself is God, that he is actually the one who has made us. Our existence is owed to him. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Verse 4 goes on and calls us again to enter into the presence of the Lord, enter into his gates and into his courts with thanksgiving and praise. Why? For the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. Do you hear that? Psalm 100 is just one example out of many scattered, littered throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament 
where God has given us words that invite us or compel us to come to Him in service and worship because of what we have seen or known about Him, because of what He has done for us. That's what we're after with a call to worship. Now, in this entire series, before we look a little bit more specifically at, at the broader biblical rationale for a call to worship, let me say two things that would be applicable not just for this call to worship reflection, but for all of the other elements of our service that we're going to look at in the, in the ensuing weeks. All right, two things I'd like you to keep in mind. Number one is that whatever we do in our formal gathered worship ought to be biblical. Meaning, whatever we do when we gather together, we ought to be able to go to what God has said in His Word and say, on the basis of this prescription, command, or on the basis of this principle, this is why we do what we do. The reason that I say that is because it is not uncommon today to take the kind of approach that says we can do whatever we want to do so long as it's not sinful or there's nothing wrong with it. So, Merritt, sermons have been a little long and dry and boring lately. We feel that in order to really feel the Spirit moving, that rather than doing a typical sermon, you ought to, prevent, or you ought to present the message today by way of interpretive dance. There's nothing in the Bible that says a Christian can't dance. Some of you are gasping right now. That's not what I learned, right? Nothing that says a Christian cannot dance, all right? So if you were to say, why don't you give the sermon today by way of interpretive dance, or why don't you mime it? There's nothing in the Bible that says that you can't do that, right? Do you, do you hear what's going on there? The question that you're implicitly asking is, what's wrong with that? That's not the question that we want to ask. We don't want to ask the question, what's wrong with that? We want to ask the question, what is right with that? Do you hear that difference? Because we believe that God has given us his word not only so that we can know him, but so that we can know how to enjoy him and approach him in worship. That God does care about the way that his people worship him. So our question is not, is there anything wrong with that? Our question is, is there anything right with that? Where has God directed us to worship in this way? So that's number one. Anything that we do as a congregation together ought to be biblical. It ought to derive from the fact that God has spoken in this way. Number two, the other thing to consider, and this sort of runs against the grain of so much of our, I, I, I hate to say it this way, our cultural moment or sort of just the, the spirit of the age sort of a thing, even in Christian circles, 
much of what we do in worship, in, in public worship, or even in private worship, is seen as being expressive, right? Meaning, worship is real worship, or worship is good worship, if I'm able to authentically express what it is that I'm feeling, or if in the expression that I am giving in that moment of worship is thrilling to me, if I get that, that emotional high, that's what worship is about. Please don't misunderstand. I am not saying that we should not find joy and enthusiasm and light-lifted, exulting hearts when we worship. Not at all. But we ought to consider that while there is an expressive element in our worship, the scriptures make very clear that worship is not just expressive, but it's also formative. Who and what you worship changes you. It shapes you. You don't need to turn there, but just listen, for example. Psalm 135, 15 through 18. The idols of the nations are but silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear, nor is there any breath at all in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them. Yes, everyone who trusts in them. If you worship a blind, deaf, spiritless idol, you will become blind, deaf, and spiritually dead. Just because you worship in the wrong way. We want to say that we are shaped by who we worship and we are also shaped by how we worship. So, our worship needs to be, ought to be, biblical, and we also want to remember that it's not just who we worship, but how we worship that's important because our worship is formative in some way or to some degree. There is no way that we can get around that. Three things, then, that we want to say about this call to worship that we do at the very beginning of our services. Number one, a call to worship is biblical. Number two, a call to worship follows our call to salvation. And by that, we don't just simply mean in sequence, right? You're called to salvation, and then you're called to worship. I mean, that is part of it. But it follows in the sense that it follows in the same kind of mold. We'll, we'll talk about that. There's a way in which a call to worship actually conditions our hearts and minds to be reminded of the gospel itself, the good news that God saves people. So a call to worship is biblical. Number two, a call to worship follows our call to salvation. And number three, a call to worship is command and comfort. Number one, a call to worship is biblical. At the macro level, right? So we're talking about just as you look over the, the sweep of Scripture 
and you recognize certain themes or patterns that exist in Scripture, we are prepared for something like, at the micro level, we are prepared for a call to worship. Because from beginning to end throughout Scripture, one of the things that we see before we actually ever get to a Sunday morning and gather together is that over and over and over again, the Scriptures make clear that God's Word comes before anything that exists or anything that transpires. God's Word is always first. We hear and obey. He reveals and we respond. So, Genesis chapter 1. Before anything exists in this world, God speaks and brings the world into existence. God's word, God's order, command, let there be, brings into existence what previously did not exist. Later in Genesis 1... When he, is, when he has created his image bearers, man and woman, before man and woman do anything, God speaks to them. He blesses them in the form of a command, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, have dominion over it. As a result of sin, when everything goes wrong, it is God's word that promises that a seed of the woman will come to right everything that has been ruined by sin. In Genesis chapter 12, when God is going to begin his work to create a people for himself, it begins with God calling Abraham out of his father's land to go to a land that he will show him. When it comes time for God to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt. That work begins with God calling to Moses from the burning bush. When the people exit Egypt and they go to Mount Sinai, it's God who calls to Moses and tells him to come to the mountain in chapter 19. In Exodus 24, it's God who calls Moses to enter into the cloud where his presence is so that he can talk and communicate and commune with him. All that's Old Testament merit. Yeah, I know. But it's in the New Testament too. Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. How does Mark say that the gospel of Jesus Christ begins? It begins with a voice calling out in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. The Lord calls for his people to get ready. In John 1, when John wants to make us aware that God is doing something new and bringing about a new work of salvation through his Son, isn't it interesting that John says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So that it's God's Word that comes in human nature, fully God and fully man, calling sinners to salvation and repentance. 
Hebrews 1 says, Long ago, with our fathers, the Lord spoke in many different ways, but in these last final days, He has spoken to us by His Son. All that God has ever done, beginning with creation, throughout His redemptive work, and in the consummation of all the good things that he has promised to us will be accomplished by the word of the Lord going out and accomplishing what he intends to happen. It should be no surprise then that if all that is and all that ever will be is created by his word, if our salvation, if we are born according to the living Word of God, His Son, by the written Word of God, the Scriptures, it should be no surprise to us that God would follow that pattern and once He has brought us into relationship with Him, would continue to call us to worship Him. Because worshiping God is not our idea. That is what God has given to us so that we will do it. Andy read from Psalm 29 this morning in our call to worship. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. The classic quintessential worship book for God's people, the book of Psalms, is filled with calls to worship. Psalm 33, sing for joy in the Lord, you righteous ones. Psalm 34, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Psalm 48, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Psalm 66, shout joyfully to God all the earth, sing the glory of his name. Let us rejoice in him. Psalm 95, oh come let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Psalm 95, 6, come let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Ephesians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And Paul goes on to say, all these things that he has done for us, he has done to the praise of the glory of his grace. Paul gets to the end of the mysterious way in which God is working out salvation through the Gentiles in Romans 9 through 11. And he ends with a, a plea, with a call, with exuberant call to marvel and worship at the God who saves. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. 2 Corinthians 9.15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift, speaking about his son. 1 Thessalonians 5.16-18, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. 1 Timothy 1.17, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Hebrews 13, 15, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Do I need to go on? 
Are you convinced that the Lord is good enough in his word to tell us that we are to worship him, to call and invite and compel us to worship him because of who he is and because of what he has done? When we start our services off with a call to worship, that is not mere formality. That is a reflection of our belief that the very reason that we are here this morning is because God has called us here. Because God calls us to worship him and to enjoy him. And that we are doing what we have been created and called to do. That is why we have a call to worship that begins anything that we do in this service. We want the Lord to speak before we ever say another word. If at this point you still question whether or not a call to worship is biblical, I don't know what else to do. I guess come see me after the service. It's there. Number two. A call to worship follows our call to salvation. And by that, once again, we mean not just sequentially, like we are saved and then we worship, but that it is in keeping with. Even the call to worship is patterned after our salvation. Let me, let me get you to three passages. Start in John chapter 10. Go ahead and turn there. John chapter 10, start with me at verse 1. John 10, 1. This is Jesus speaking. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. If you're here as a follower of Christ, why are you here? Well, you're here at the very least because, according to what Jesus says in John 10, he called you to himself. He called, you heard, and you responded to his call to follow him. That's salvation. The Lord says elsewhere, our Lord says elsewhere, that I have not come to call the righteous, but I've come to call sinners to repentance. 
Meaning that when Jesus, as the good shepherd, calls his sheep, notice, by name, he calls you individually, personally. When his call is echoing in your ears, he is not calling you because you are some pure, snow-white, driven sheep. He is calling every one of us deeply wounded, corrupted, twisted, dark, black sheep. Calling these sheep to repentance and to follow him. So that when we come on Sunday morning and when the call to worship goes out, one of the things that we ought to remind ourselves of is, isn't God good to call a sinner like me to find life in his son. And isn't God good to continue to call me? No matter how bad and rotten this week has been leading up to Sunday, or how bad or rotten this week after Sunday will be, God has called me again. If you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ, you don't know him as king, as savior, you don't know what it means to follow him, let me pose a provocative question to you, whoever, wherever you might be. Is it possible that the very fact that you are here today is because you are being called. That God, through his word, in the person of Christ, by the power of his Holy Spirit, is still calling wayward, wandering sheep into his fold, still calling sinners to repentance so that they can find forgiveness and life. If you are here today and you don't know Christ, you ought not to think that your presence here is random or accidental. God may already be calling you. And if he is calling you, to the mercy and grace of his son, Jesus Christ. Why delay? Why not respond? If you don't know what that means, if you feel perhaps there is some sort of drawing or curiosity or some sort of attraction to what you're hearing, but you don't know what it means to respond to that drawing and that call, I have good news for you. This sanctuary is littered with people who can tell you how to respond to that call. And if by chance you happen to stumble into a person who is not so sure about the answer to give you, they can find someone who will, who will be able to tell you. That's John chapter 10. Turn to Romans chapter 8.
Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become, to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And then listen to this chain. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Before someone is justified, before they are declared right, by grace, through faith, what happens before that act of justification? They're called. Nothing wrong with saying that you called out to the Lord, right? All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Nothing wrong with using that language and saying that. But don't misunderstand. You would never have called on him if he were not first calling you. He calls us so that we can respond in faith and be justified by his grace. And then the last one, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Just pause there just for a second, just to make a little side point. This is one of the reasons why we want to be careful that just because we find something in the Old Testament, that doesn't mean that we ought not to consider it as something that is valuable or pertinent to God's new covenant people. Because the New Testament apostles are always taking from the Old Testament and saying, do you see what God was doing back then? He's doing something like that now. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That's Old Testament language that was used to, for Israel that now is being applied to the church. But notice, keep, keep on, that's not our main point so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. One of the reasons that God called you out of sin, out of slavery, out of darkness, is so that you would let it be known that you have been called out. So we go back again. Our worship service begins with a call to worship. Not only because we see through, from beginning to end, God calling his people to worship him, giving them abundant reasons for why he is worthy of their worship, but also because it is in keeping with God's pattern of calling a people to himself and continuing to call them over and over and over again to come further up and further in. 
you ought to be reminded of the fact that you have been called to worship God because you were called to salvation by his grace in Jesus Christ. And number three, a call to worship is both a command and a comfort. There is no getting around the fact that many of what we would recognize or identify as calls to worship in the scriptures are given as an imperative, as a command. So we started in Psalm 100. When you read things like, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Enter. That's a command. That's a, that's a directive that is being given. Now, the mystery of a new nature that God gives us is something that John says in his first epistle in 1 John. By this, or this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So when we hear God command us to come and worship him, how does your heart respond to that? Do you respond, is your knee-jerk reflexive reaction, man, this God sure is demanding. Can you just give me one Sunday for a break? Why do I have to come every Sunday? Do this, do that. Those of us who have entered into the love of God hear his commands, and we find his commands not to be burdensome, but to be life. And let me also say that one of the things to be mindful of is in these commands to come and worship. There is, without a doubt, a personal, individual component to that. But please do not lose sight of the fact that the overwhelming majority of these calls and compulsions to worship are given to God's people as a corporate body, as a congregation. Let us exalt his name together. How will you obey that command if you do not gather with your brothers and sisters to praise him together? It matters that we come on Sunday to do this together. Because not only has God called us to worship, he's called us to worship together. You can't worship together over a live stream. You can't worship together over a podcast, over sermon audio. You can only worship together when you are together. God has given us that command not because he intends to be a burden to us, but so that we can find in our faith and obedience that this is what we have truly been created to do. To share and contribute and magnify what would be small joy in my own to now be compounded by the joy that is shared and expressed by my other brothers and sisters. 
joy and celebration is always deeper and better and greater when it is shared. Always. But not only is the call to worship a command for us to obey, it is also a comfort. Here's why. Because even though we will confess and acknowledge that when I hear God command me to obey, even when I know that it is the voice of a loving father calling to his son or his daughter, this son is still mixed up and imperfect and corrupted with various temptations and competing desires. I don't always feel like worshiping. I'm a pastor, and I don't always feel like it. You? You ever come, and either because of the burdens of this life or what you're carrying, you just, okay, I'll gut my way through it, or you come, it's been a horrific morning, you've been yelling at your spouse, yelling at the kids, kids aren't even half-dressed when they get into the car, they're going to call defects on me, the dog was in the way when you were going to get in the car, so you kicked the dog to get him to move, and then you come and you hear the call to worship. It's time to praise the Lord now. <laughs> what is your pitiful heart going to do in that moment? Here's the comfort that a call to worship offers us. It is a reminder that God knows our weaknesses. He knows our struggles. He knows our failures. And he still calls us anyway. He does not tell us Get yourself fixed up before you even dare to think about worshiping me. But he offers out to us the promise that if you come, I'll fix you. If you come, I'll heal you. If you come, I'll satisfy you. So when we come and we gather on a Sunday morning, whether you are on cloud nine or down in the valley, it makes no difference. God has still called you to the privilege of being able to worship him. It is a gift and a sign of his unending favor for his people that we get to hear the voice of our Lord call us to himself once again every week that we come and gather together. That's why we do a call to worship. Let's pray.
Father, who are we that we should expect anything good coming from your hand? And yet, not only have you given us life in this creation of yours, but you have given us life in your Son, though we were undeserving, wayward, rebellious, God-hating, prideful people, and you have called us to yourself so that we could be reconciled to you through the death of your Son, who was punished for our sin in our place. And according to the riches of your mercy and your endless grace, not only have you called us to yourself in salvation, but you continue to call us to yourself in worship so that we can know you and enjoy you forever. Would you give us ears to hear the voice of a loving and gracious Father speaking to us when you call us to worship? Would you give us responsive hearts that want to grow, that want to increase in holiness, that want to find you to be our one true satisfaction and treasure? And do it, Father, so that in our worship we continue to take on the likeness of our Savior Jesus Christ, whose motivation and source of food for his soul was in serving and obeying you. Do it, Father, we ask, by the transforming work of your Spirit who indwells us, and we'll give you all the praise and the glory for it. Amen.